told us the real um, crunch pin piece of his retirement, actually. Um, uh, there's, still, there's still a story in Robert for that. But just to, to hear, God's got him through. And God's more than blessed him as he's been able to do that. And now the, the Thai situation. And, and don't you just love Jeanette and Elizabeth? Elizabeth's limping. Jeanette's um, Jeanette. And, and <laughs> they're just such a cool couple together in, in the, way they, the way they have this friendship. And, and they've got these stories. Someone's got cancer and then the doctors can't find it. And they say, oh, it probably wasn't cancer. Maybe. Maybe, maybe it was the fact that they prayed and asked the God of heaven to look after this, this lady's son. Don't you love that there are actual stories? We're not, we're not playing a game. We're, not, we're, not, we're, we're living the real thing. Jesus is real and he loves us. God loves us. God sent the Holy Spirit to the earth and said, stay there until I've completely finish the plan, stay on the earth, and just keep interacting with all these humans that I have such love for. I absolutely, absolutely love that. Hey, I've got a clip um, that I think we can play just about who we are. Who am I? Am I what I do? An artist, an accountant, a teacher, a mother? Or am I what I've achieved, an honor student? an MVP, a winner? Am I the things I've done right? Or am I defined by the things I've done wrong? Am I a saint, a sinner? What about what others think of me? Am I all of these things, none of these things? Who am I? How I identify myself determines how I approach life. If I am what I do, I'll always need to do more and achieve more to find my value. If I am what others say, I'll always try to please people instead of my Heavenly Father. But if I listen to who God says I am and embrace His identity in me, I'll find the freedom to live out all He has planned for me. God calls me His child. He says I am wise and restored that I'm a brand new creation in Christ. I am chosen and holy and blameless before God. He calls me his masterpiece. I am loved by God. He says I am made complete through the grace and mercy of Jesus, my Savior. And when I see myself the way God sees me, I walk with confidence because I trust the one who answers the question, who am I? So that's our series, folks. That's what we're going to be having a real look at. And I just pray, God, that you'd take each of these things from the area of the, of the mind and bring them down into the area of our heart so we actually believe it, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, today is, is about this thing of being a saint, but I want to bring up a, two scriptures. And the first one's Ephesians chapter 1, where it says, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God, to the saints, the saints. Would you say that with me? saints in Ephesus and faithful in Christ Jesus. And then another scripture in 1 Corinthians, and so it is written, the first man, Adam, became a living being, the last Adam, and I've put um, Jesus in there so that you can understand who it's referring to. The last Adam became a life-giving spirit. The first man was of the earth, made of dust. The second man is the Lord from heaven. 
And I want you to notice in that scripture that Jesus is called the last Adam and the second man. Say it with me, the last Adam and the second man. You'll see how important it is as we get a bit further on. Now, what I want to ask is this question. Why was Paul given such a hard time in Ephesus? Um, Ephesus is a huge city. Can we just have a look at some of the, the um, pictures from when Sandra and I were there? These are some of the um, ruins that, that are still remaining there. But it was a metropolis. There were, they reckon there were about 250,000 people. And if you just go back a, a picture, you can see the hills. The border of the city where the city wall is is on the top of the hill on both sides. So the city just continued up this whole ravine of two hills um, and, and, of course, everything at the bottom there as well. That's where um, separated royalty from the commoners and that you couldn't walk the street coming back up this way. Royalty was up this way. Only royalty could walk down to where the commoners were. The, the commoners couldn't walk up. Just keep going. That's what some of the things look like. Um, but today, you, you see it just in real ruin form like that. And I think the next one is the, the well, there's the library and then the Acropolis. Um, and that was made, that, that seats 25,000 people um, that's there. But the city was about 250,000 people. So it was this kind of a hub in the Roman Empire. Lots of people would travel through um, Ephesus. It was a very wealthy city. It had a lot of trade. There was banking. It functioned as the Roman provincial capital of Asia Minor, which is Turkey today. Um, it was the center of supernatural activity. Think demons. The temple of Artemis was there, which was one of the then seven, seven wonders of the world. And there was also many other temples, some of which, a couple of which were on the pictures, uh, of emperor worship for, um, for the Roman emperor. There was the temple of uh, Serapis and Isis from Egypt. Um, and, and the temples were often full of um, prostitutes. There was religious prostitution. So people who would, would uh, sailors would come in, for instance, and they would have sex with um, temple prostitutes as a way of worshipping Artemis. So prostitution was a big deal that was there. And when you think of the city, you've got to think big. You've got to think like cities today, big, influential cities. Um, and Paul sparked such controversy in this city of, of 250,000 people. And so the question is, what did Paul say that got everyone, or lots and lots of people, certainly the leaders, the political leaders, the religious leaders, the, um, the uh, people in the temples, and then thousands of commoners as well, they filled that amphitheater and they, and they rioted for hours saying, great is Artemis of the Ephesians, great is Artemis of the Ephesians, and they tried to railroad Paul out, and soldiers had to be brought, a garrison of soldiers had to be brought and rescue him from where he was hiding there because they wanted his blood. What was he saying that got the whole city so agitated? I'll give you the words. There were two of them. And you can go downtown today and stand in the square or wherever people congregate. Go to the mall and yell these words out. And I'll guarantee you won't be thrown out of the city. The words were, in Christ. They don't sound that inflammatory. In Christ. In Christ. When I was there, I was just struck by all of the center of all these gods. And Jesus won. 
Paul shouted out, you can be in Christ. And so many thousands of people said, we want to be in Christ, that it affected the very economics of the city. It's incredible. You get there and you think, we're actually on the winning team if we just believed it and began to share it in a no-compromise way like Paul was sharing the love that Jesus has for people. And people who were temple prostitutes were going, I want to be in Christ. And they were moving out of what they had been to become this in such numbers that it absolutely affected the temple. And women that had been high priestesses with their gorgeous fashion and their sensuality and their their golden jewelry were coming to Christ and stepping out of that and saying, I'm not going to do that, and I'm going to be in the, in, the, in the church, in the kingdom of God. In fact, I'd like to lead it. And Paul has to write, because it went on and on and on and on, and Paul has to write to in Timothy, because Timothy was the pastor that came after Paul in, in Ephesus and, and was in the church there, and Paul has to write to Timothy and say, don't allow these high-class women to just come over out of, out of darkness and come into leading the, the church. And he puts a ban on there being able to lead. He said, no, they've got to learn first. And Timothy, and I don't think it's, we've been studying this year, that's not a forever ban. It's because there was a crisis of people coming to get into Christ. Paul was standing up and effectively saying, there's only two teams in the world. You're either in Adam or you can be in Christ. But you've got to be in one or the, you're in one or the other. And so many hundreds and thousands of people were coming to Christ over the years that it affected the, everything in the city. And the people there that were threatened by their tourists were no longer buying the little jewelry things and the artifacts of, of Artemis and the temple of Artemis. They were, they were interested in what Paul was preaching. And this riot takes place. And Paul, he was imprisoned at least once, maybe even twice in Ephesus. And he, and he says, he says um, something that infers that he fought wild beasts in Ephesus in that, uh, in that amphitheater that, that was there. Although a lot of commentators said, say that they don't think it was literal wild beasts, that it was probably the demonic attack that Paul was under as he was winning there, preaching year after year. He was several years preaching there. It's amazing. In Christ, in Christ, in Christ. In Acts chapter 19, it says that um, extraordinary miracles, not just miracles, miracles are cool, but when Paul was there, extraordinary things started to happen, like just taking a handkerchief and putting it near someone, and they get supernaturally healed just like this. Or when the seven sons of Sceva, um, who, who were not, not Christ, uh, Christians, tried to cast a demon out of someone in Ephesus, and, and uh, seven of them, and they said, we, we command you in the name of Jesus, whom Paul preaches, to get out of this man. And the man beat them up so bad, he stripped them naked, there was so much blood flowing, and he threw them out of the house, all seven of them. And it says, holy fear fell on the whole city. And, and the people who had been uh, worshipping demons, they bought all their, art their dark artifacts, and they bought all these things together, probably to that amphitheater, and they started to burn them all. And they said there was 50,000 days' wages of gear that was 
for worshipping Satan, worshipping witchcraft, was burnt on one day. Now, 50,000 drachmas, 50,000 days wages. The average wage in New Zealand, they tell me on Google, is $49,000 for wages, $72,000 for salary. So let's just say it was 50000 for a round figure. That means an average day's pay is $192 times 50000 $9,600,000 worth of witchcraft gear was burnt, burnt in Ephesus because of Paul. Standing and saying, you can be in Christ. You don't have to be in Adam. And of course, he was unpacking everything else that in Christ actually means. And so as he's writing Ephesus, that's the background of this amazing story that he's writing in this book called Ephesians. You know, in Christ is the shortest way you can talk about our identity. We are in Christ. And it means so much. The very first thing that Paul, when he writes Ephesians, amplifies about what in Christ actually means is it means that in Christ you are a saint. Just say it to yourself. Out loud if you would. I am Hands up if you believe it. Oh, very, very good. Those of you that aren't believing it yet, I want to go after you. That first scripture, Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God. And go after you, I actually mean I want to encourage you <laughs> to believe it. <laughs> by the will of God to the saints who are in Ephesus and faithful in Christ Jesus. You know, scholars tell us that the Bible addresses non-Christians as sinners several hundred times in the New Testament. It addresses non-Christians as sinners several hundred times in the New Testament. But when it talks about people who have found Christ and are now in Christ, it talks about them as Saints, huge, huge difference, huge difference. And I, I think I'm not telling you anything that you don't already know, but just that many of us don't actually believe it when crunch comes. Because if we did believe that we were a saint, that would mean we would know we are righteous and we're holy. At the deepest levels of who we are, righteous and holy. At the core level, we often don't believe that, especially when we've just sinned. Can you put yourself back into your last sin? Are you there? In here? I bet most of us, when we sin, we see ourselves in the sinner shame mode. How can I lift my head? I'm just a sinner saved by grace. In fact, we, we, we quote that saying a lot, eh? I'm a sinner saved by grace. You heard that? I'm just a sinner saved by grace. Wow. I've been forgiven, but the core of me is broken. It's messed up. It's even depraved. You know, if you're taking communion, when we have communion set here, which we do every month, and you are reminded somehow that you've sinned, do you see yourself immediately as a righteous person? Who needs a little bit of cleaning up? Or when you remember you sin, your, your sin, do you think, you idiot, you sinner, you failure, you person who deserves punishment? I mean, honestly, how do you actually see yourself? 
I tried to get an, a, a picture that would express this. And so I came up with this. A person just managing to go through life and keep their head above the water of sin, but just doggy paddling. Or maybe the next picture. You kind of feel that most of the time you're just out of, only just above the sin that's around your life. How do you see yourself? Is that the common image that, just go back to the other one. Is that the common image of you in this sea where sin just seems to constantly come around? And, and that's what God's, God wants us to keep our head up until we get to heaven. But we're just basically sinners saved by grace. Is that who we are? Is that the image that we see of ourselves? You know, it's most people's default is this. Do you remember last week when I asked you, do you think Adam and Eve knew that their sin would have such a big knock-on, flow-on effect that it would actually affect every generation? And most of you said, no, I don't think they thought that at all. I think they just thought it was going to be about, about them, just them. But theologians talk about something called a federal head. And it means that Christ and Adam are federal heads. In Adam when, and Eve, when they sinned, in their loins, so to speak, was every other human being not yet born. But they are the federal head of that line. Do you see what I'm saying? Christ also, sinless, is a federal head of a line. Are you with me? Haven't lost you there? I don't think they ever thought that when they sinned in that one action that they were creating a fallen nature in every other human being that would be born, that they would pass on somehow in their spiritual genetics, fault, fall, problem, sin nature, selfishness. Well, Paul was probably the greatest theologian that has ever existed on the planet outside of Jesus, of, of course. And God chose him for that reason, that he was the, probably the brightest man with a heart for God, although Paul didn't know he had a heart for God at first, the real God, he was out to kill every Christian that he possibly could until God just arrested him one day. And he had a revelation. He had a revelation, and so he could preach so powerfully to the effect that he actually began to change the entire city, and that $9.6 million of dark arts was burnt on one day because Paul had a revelation that what had happened in Christ was greater than the effect of what had happened in Adam. Adam's sin was massive. But Paul knew that Christ's death and his resurrection would have greater flow-on effects. And so he told people powerfully, strongly. Only this time, the, the ongoing effects would all be positive. Where Satan's took mankind down on a, on a slant like this, Christ's death and then resurrection takes mankind on a growth to better and positive and better and better and greater things. You know, God, who's infinite intelligence, seems to like playing games with pictures. Have you ever noticed that? God will show you something, and then it'll just close. You ever noticed? God will give revelation. You'll say, I get it. I, I did have it. He'll show you a picture, and he'll close it down again. He'll show you something. It's like he's saying, how interested in you, in me, are you? How interested are you in this that I'm showing you? And then it just goes dark again. 
It's like if he gives you a dream and a revelation of something, if you don't write it down, you think, oh, I'll remember that in the morning. You wake up in the morning, how many of you remember it? It's just closed down. But God gives these pictures. And, and listen to these pictures. The first Adam was the source of idolatry and the downfall of humankind. The last Adam was the remedy for idolatry and the restorer of humankind. The first Adam turned from his father in the garden. The last Adam turned to his father in the garden. The first Adam was naked and ashamed. And the last Adam was naked on a cross and bore our shame. The first Adam brought us thorns. The last Adam took it as a crown and wore it around his head. The first Adam tried to substitute himself for God. And the last Adam was God and substituted himself for people who are sinners. The first Adam sinned at a tree. And the last Adam bore our sins on a tree. The first Adam died as a sinner and the last Adam died for sinners. You know, when you see the big picture, it's like God's playing chess with everybody. And he's better at chess than everybody. It's like, I see you, now I'll raise you by this amount. Every time. In Adam we die. In Christ we're made alive. In Adam there's condemnation. In Christ there's salvation. In, in Adam we receive a sin nature. In Christ we receive a new nature. And it's something that we did not have before. And it's something that does not come from the dust like Adam came from the dust. It comes from heaven and it's been placed into you and me when we became in Christ. We've got something that we did not have before. It's called a new nature. We have had a fallen nature, but now we've got a new nature. You know, why are we called saints? Because we are in Christ. We're literally in Him. And I know this gets mystical, and I know this gets spiritual, and I can't explain everything of it. What I can explain is what the Bible tells me. Is You know, when you come to communion, where is Christ? Have a look at this next picture. He's above the water. He's on the board. He's in the boat. And even if he didn't have a boat, he'd still be above the water because he proved he walks on water. And if water represents the sin, he never had any. And where have we been placed? In Christ. Are we needing rescue in a sea of sin? Or are we in Christ? What image do you have when you think about you? And what Christ has done, he's above the water and we really are in him. We really are in him. That is our literal new default. So maybe there's some stuff. To repent means to change your mind. I know we think of repentance as being tears and humility and turning from sin towards Christ. But all of that involves a change of mind. The literal meaning of repent is to change your mind. I'm putting before you today that there's two possibilities for you to hold as an image in your head when you think about yourself. 
and you say, yes, I believe I'm a saint. Well, that's a saint. That's the position of a saint. It's not the other one. You know, it's a violation of Scripture and God's plan to think that God would take someone who is at their core dirty and broken and place them as a dirty, broken being into Christ. If God puts something unholy into the body of his son, what does the body of his son become? Unholy. It wrecks it. So Christ has done something that is far beyond taking forgiven sinners and putting sinners into Christ. Come on, stay with me. He's done something inside of you and me called a new nature. It's absolutely from heaven, not from the earth. It's not for, we didn't have it when we got born. We got born a second time. We got born twice to get it. And it's absolutely holy. Let me dig it a little bit deeper with this, with that scripture about the Adam and, the, and the, um, the last Adam. 1 Corinthians 15, and so it is written, the first man, Adam, became a living being. The last Adam became a life-giving spirit. The first man was of the earth, made of dust. The second man is the Lord from heaven. So Adam was the first man. That makes perfect sense, doesn't it? Please nod your head because I know you're awake makes perfect sense that Adam was the first man. But, but then Jesus is called the last Adam. He's called the last Adam, the end of the line Adam. And then Adam's again called the first man, and, and now Jesus is called the second man. So Jesus has two labels here. He's called the last Adam and the second man. So why wasn't Jesus called the second Adam and the second man? Why was he called last you know, the language there makes Jesus a doorway from one thing into another thing. A doorway from something old into something that is absolutely, completely new. From an old, faulty template of humanity to a new, heavenly template. From an old version from a, to, to, to that final vehicle off the rack. It's like if you own a, a car and it's recalled because it has a product fault in it, you go in there, you expect to get the old car back, right? Now you imagine, you go in and you say, you're right, the, the airbags don't work, there's a problem there, and, you, and they say, okay, we're just going to literally scrap that. We're going to give you the keys to a brand new totally upgraded, top-of-the-line model of what we've ever, ever made. We'd go, yes, please. <laughs> Bring it on. That's what Jesus has done. We're not a repaired version of a faulty model. We're an in-Christ in model that is a completely new model of, of, of with no connection to the old. Jesus literally finishes the Adamic race one life at a time for everyone who gets born again. Now, it's like God really does love chess. The first man begins Adam's race. The second man ends the Adamic line by dying as a perfect man on our behalf. 
The first man is of the earth. The second man, it says, is of, heaven, is of heaven. In other words, he welcomes us into the whole spirit realm and the resurrection side of Jesus being, um, coming out of the grave. And through Adam, we're all born into sin. And through Jesus, we're reborn. And there's a doorway into a new nature of the heavenly man. And, and through Adam, we inherit the sin nature. But through faith in Jesus, the sin nature gets put to death and then we receive a new nature, and we receive an inheritance, and we receive a relationship with God through the Holy Spirit and through Jesus, and we receive resurrection power. And you might think, well, when did this all happen? Well, historically, it all happened on the cross, and then the resurrection. When Jesus died on the cross, spiritually, every single one of us, even though we hadn't been born, were put into Jesus as he died on the cross. But experientially, we get to receive that for ourselves at the point where we give our life to Jesus. Now this is where I really want to, I want you to listen carefully. Experientially, we get to inherit all of that at the point where we make with our voice Jesus, I want to follow you. I want to give my heart to you. I invite you to come and live inside of me. I want you to forgive me of my sins. Do you remember that moment? We are connected to the cross at that moment, although we're 2,000 years in terms of time ahead of it. But God lives outside of time. Concurrently with when we are baptized. So what am I saying is I'm saying our salvation is linked to both our speech and our baptism. Romans 6.3 says, Or don't you know that all of us who were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? So is it enough to become a Christian and just invite Jesus to come into our life? This is dicey ground, really dicey ground. The answer is yes, but. And the yes is, that's what the Bible says. All those who confess Jesus, who cry out in the name of Jesus, will be saved. But the but is, it says that when we are baptized, we become baptized into his death. And salvation and baptism are supposed to be just linked together. But if you're like me, there was probably quite a gap between when you made a decision to follow Christ and when you actually followed in the obedience of saying, I'm going to also get baptized. And some of you here today will have made a decision to follow Christ and never gotten baptized. But look, look at the next part here. When we get baptized in, in Romans 6, 4, it says, we were therefore buried with him through baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may live a new life in the resurrection power of Jesus. So what is this image saying? Well, I think that it's, it's similar to getting a passport and going to a country. We are invited to live in a country called the kingdom of God. You can't see the kingdom of God, but it spreads across every nationality and every people group across the planet. And we are invited to live into the kingdom of God, which in the Old Testament was called the promised land. 
And we get a passport for that when we invite Christ into us. But here's another thing to just contemplate, because I'm wanting you to think this through. There are two images in the Bible, Christ being in us and us being in Christ. Christ being in us is spoken about when we invite him into the center of our life, usually with our voice. Although Julie, Julie said just something the other day where it was just one word from someone. and She burst out saying, he's in me. God was there. But the interchrist scripturally is linked to baptism. So we get a passport. I think baptism is like the stamping of the passport. And when you get your passport stamped in another country, they go, off you go. Go and enjoy it. When, you haven't, when you've got your passport but it's not stamped, you're within this confined waiting area. And I think there's a lot of people who have been thinking, is this all there is to the Christian life? They've given their life to Jesus, but it doesn't open out in the way that it's supposed to open out. And maybe it's because you've never been baptized. Because these two things scripturally, Philip, he speaks to a, 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 a man from Ethiopia, dark-skinned man from Ethiopia who is a, a, a royal official um, there. And, and the moment the man realizes that, he, he, that Jesus wants a relationship with him, that the Father wants to, to, to know him personally, and he gives his life, life to Christ, then immediately says, there's some water, let's get baptized. The Ethiopian says this to Philip, what's stopping us? So they stop the chariot and the two things go together. You know, if we want God's results in our lives, it pays to do it God's way. True? Hey, we're, we're part of a denomination that grew out of standing on the truth that people need to be baptized. And some of them were killed because they said that. And unfortunately, they were killed by other Christians certainly the church and we we said no these things go together and we stood on it historically but sometimes we haven't seen it and, and we just haven't haven't said okay I want to do it your way God I want to have a baptismal service in a few weeks time and if you're not baptized why don't you make a decision to talk to me and let's just get that done you know I think that there is a legal a legal authority to baptism. It's not just a ceremony that explains what happened when you gave yourself to Christ. I think there's a legal power. You know, in the Old Testament, um, when God rescued the children of Israel out of Egypt, what was the first thing they came to? The sea, the Red Sea. And, and they had to go through it, and it's the picture of baptism, 1 Corinthians tells us. It's the picture of baptism. And when did Satan's army get killed and destroyed? At the waters of baptism. There's a legal authority for us, for the devil, and for the promises of God to be released around our life that comes when we put our salvation and our speech and the following of Christ in the waters of baptism together. There's more to it than what we think. So let's do it Jesus' way. You see, when God puts us into Christ, there's no broken, messed up, sinful bit 
at our core because Christ has given us a new nature at the very center of who we are. Christ has already forgiven you all your past, all your present, and even all your future sins. You are, the righteous, you are righteous as a gift with, a, with a, a new heavenly nature. Now, you're all waiting for the but. And the but is, but we still sin. And this is where Christians, we all struggle. What do we do with this? You're not a sinner saved by grace. You're a righteous person in Christ saved by grace who occasionally sins. And the Father has already forgiven you of every sin that you're going to commit. Can we have a look at that picture of the board again? So what do we do with these occasional sin issues? You know, I've heard some grace preachers say, well, it doesn't matter. Just concentrate on believing you're righteous, even though you know you're carrying on sinning. And I just, I just shake my head and go, no, it's not right. I heard one say that I'm too busy to worry about sin. I go, no, absolutely not. I believe it's wrong. I believe it's unbiblical. I believe it's arrogant. You imagine if you have kids. How many, have, how many do have kids? How many would like, you know, you're going to do whatever you can to bless your kids. Is that true? How many of you would like it if your kids had an attitude that says, Dad and Mum are going to forgive me anyway, so it doesn't matter what I do. I'll just leave my stuff in the middle of the lounge and I'll have food on the floor. And How many of you would like your kids to grow up that way? I think, I think it's arrogant when, when people can say, God's forgiven so I can go off and do whatever I want anyway. It's not right. It's not true. We do need to focus on the fact that God says we're saints, we're righteous, but not ignore our occasional sin. And I believe that's why, um, you know, Jesus said, have communion regularly. Do it as often as you remember me, which means you can do it at home every day if you want to. But we as a church, we bring it on uh, every month. And you remember um, when Jesus was washing the disciples' feet, um, Jesus Peter says to him, um, oh Lord, don't just wash my feet then, wash the rest of me. And what did Jesus say back to him? No, Peter, you are already clean. It's just the feet have got some dirt on them from today. Let's just deal with this issue of what's on your feet, Peter. But you are righteous. And I believe that's the position that the Bible spells out to us. We are this. But God has chosen to not make us sinless all the way through, he's after our minds and our hearts that we choose him and not the other stuff. So he's left us with free will. When we come to Christ, he does not make us a robot. And I'm happy with that. And you would be happy too. But it means we have this issue that we can still sin. We can, we can go places and do things and look and, and, and act and, in ways that, that are sin. You know, this is the sanctifying process. And what I've discovered as I've gotten over, older, and I guess many of you have too, is that the older I get, the more I actually take issue with sin. Things that I could just walk past and bypass, I, I find God, God challenging my heart more now. And, and when I do sin, I, the, the, the sense of, oh, God, this is not me. This is not the way that I'm supposed to be. 
is even a greater struggle. And, and I would say that in some things, there's even a hatred for sin in my life, even though I can fall in those areas. But I hate it. When I was young, it was just, oh God, I, I'm in a mess. Please fix me up. Thanks. But as I've grown older, that sensitivity to wanting to walk righteously has grown. And I think it would be true in, in any of us that as God is maturing us, it's part of what God is after that causes us to hold back and to resist and to say, I'm, gonna, I'm not going to go there. I'm not going to do that. I'm not going to act that way. I'm not going to think those things. I'm not gonna, going, going to um, be greedy in, in that kind of way with people. And we, we're told we're to fight against sin that we would walk right. I guess nowhere in the Bible have I found as clear a statement as, as in the book of Jude um, about this. It says this, Dear friends, I have been eagerly planning to write to you about the salvation that we all share, but now I find that I must write about something else, urging you to defend the faith that God has entrusted to us once for all time to his holy people. I say this because some ungodly, would you say ungodly? People have wormed their way into your churches, saying that God's marvelous grace allows us to live immoral lives. The condemnation of such people was recorded long ago, for they have denied their only master and Lord, Jesus Christ. You see, God gives us freedom. But grace does not mean, well, okay, let's just sin as much as we can. Let's enjoy the sin. No, we've, just got, to, we've got to resist. We've got to fight against that. We've got to, oh God, I want to walk out what, you, what you've planned for my life in holiness. Thank you that there is forgiveness. Thank you there's ongoing forgiveness. But God, I want to walk right. True grace empowers us to go the other way from sin not towards it. That makes sense? You can read the next, the next verses that are there too, and he gives some really strong um, illustrations of it's, it's like this. Grace can sound like a license to sin, but it's not. True understanding of grace will empower us in the other direction. God uses the word saint over you and me. Try it on the person next to you. It's more true than we believe. Can we just have a look at um, the next pictures? Are you a sinner just saved by grace? Is that the image you're going to carry into your future? Or are you someone who's totally righteous in the boat with Jesus? Who occasionally sins and needs to get those, treat those things seriously and... and you're already forgiven. You can just go to God and, God, I'm sorry, and I thank you that you've forgiven this for me this, me for this already. But your security is in Christ. It's in Christ. It's in Christ. It's in Christ. I want to invite you to take these thoughts and these images away with you because they're powerful things. They will radically affect how you live out your life in the future as to which image you choose to focus upon. I'm just a sinner, saved by grace. I'm messed up, I'm broken on the inside. Or actually, the old me went to the cross of Jesus Christ 
The Adamic part of me got killed with everyone else's Adamic part. And when Jesus resurrected, I've got a brand new nature and I'm a brand new person. I am called a Christian. I'm in Christ. Todd.